Hi everybody, Dave Perry here, welcoming you to the inaugural episode of Battle Rhythm, a podcast from the Canadian Defence and Security Network in partnership with us at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. The Canadian Defence and Security Network, or CDSN, is focused on bringing together people who are studying or working in defence and security throughout Canada to build a community. The Canadian Global Affairs Institute is partnering with the CDSN to assist in the production and hosting of their new podcast, Battle Rhythm. Battle Rhythm is hosted by my colleagues and CGAI fellows Stephanie Von Lackey and Steve Sademan, and the goal of the podcast is to discuss defense and security issues of the day, while also shedding light on the work of various Canadian academics and practitioners. The podcast will be joining our weekly lineup on the CGAI podcast network, with new episodes dropping every second Wednesday. Hope you enjoy. For the first episode of Battle Rhythm, the podcast of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. We will first discuss our name and how it beat out several competitors. We will talk about some items in the news, specifically the phasing out of the Canadian mission in Mali and the appointment of a woman to the job of Woman, Peace, and Security Ambassador. We will then go to a regular segment of ours where we will talk to an emerging scholar. This week's emerging scholar is James Anderson, who appeared at the Women in International Security Canada workshop. Steve's Peeves will follow next with Those Damn Millennials. And I think the Damn Millennials will actually not mind that one. We will conclude with a conversation with Dan Dresner, who was one of the keynote speakers at the Kingston Conference on International Security. So, Stephanie, why did we choose Battle Rhythm, and what does it mean to you? Battle Rhythm refers to the routines and schedules in a military headquarters, and it really is a way to optimize how you organize your time to best support the commander in a nutshell. What does it mean to you? Well, to me, it means having breakfast at at 4.45 in the morning, having lunch at 11 and having promotion parties and award parties and lots of cake because that was my experience in the Pentagon in 2001, 2002, where we did have a battle rhythm. The key of the battle rhythm was we had to have our morning meeting at 7 a.m. So we had to brief the colonel because the colonel had to brief another colonel, and that colonel had to brief a general, and that general had to brief another general, and so on. And so we had to get in early, read the reports, and then provide uh, the message of the day on the Balkans, which for my first week in the Pentagon was the hot spot for American foreign policy in 2001. After my first week, it got moved to the back burner because of 9-11. But we had a battle rhythm, and we kept it for the entire year of, of what we did every day, more or less. And so it made sense for what we're doing now to, to use that. I agree. And uh, that seemed like a pretty grueling schedule, waking up at uh, 4.45 in the morning. There's also cake in there. Where's your PT? Uh, we did have PT. That was a really good question. That was a definitely part of our battle rhythm, which is we had uh, a gym that was across the street that we had to leave the Pentagon, essentially, to get to in the renovations. They put it inside the building. But it was a really beaten up old gym. We think that we were breathing in bestos while we were exercising. And the primary form of exercise that year was one of two forms. Either folks went running and they usually ran to places like uh, the Lincoln Memorial or we played racquetball. And I did most, I did mostly play racquetball. I think I've recovered from the various welts I have in the back of my body because I got hit often uh, (laughs) because we often played uh, with three or four people at a time, but I haven't played any racquetball since then. But that was definitely very much part of our battle rhythm. We had different names that didn't make the final cut, but you came up with some pretty creative suggestions. Battle rattle was one of them. What does it mean? It refers to the equipment that one puts on when one goes out on patrol. So your vest, your helmet, the things that hang off your vest. Uh, And I got to experience that 
and you did too in your own travels. When I went to Afghanistan in 2007, they had us pick up our battle rattle at Camp Mirage, which we were not supposed to name, but everybody knew to be Dubai. And then we had to drop it off at our end of our trip in, in Dubai on the way out. Uh, so I actually got to wear a battle rattle, although they didn't let us have guns. Did they let you have a gun in your personal protection gear when you were in Iraq recently? No. <laughs> Unequivocal no. Uh, and let's see, what are some of the other names we had? We had Camo Convo, which made me laugh a lot. Great suggestion by, by Melissa. And we also had Talking Helmets play on Talking Heads. Yeah. What and- other names were up there? Well, Phil Agassi will forever be disappointed that we didn't use his, which he used our names uh, to have Stefcon Steve as opposed to Defcon 5, which is Defense Condition 5, which is a condition of peace. If you ever see the movie mm-hmm. War Games, and everybody should see the movie War Games, the defense condition would go down to 3, then to 2, as the United States got closer and closer to war. Def Condition 1, or Defense Condition 1, is war itself. He likes that one. We did crowdsource on Twitter, but we didn't really get anything that really called to us. But as we were doing the photo shoot for the cover of our podcast page, this was the one that struck us. And it was your idea, and I've really fallen in love with it. I feel like uh, as a nod to Phil, we could name maybe an episode, Steph Con Steve. Maybe if we get to talk about nukes, we can bring that in for a special episode. I think that would make him really happy. Well, you know, it's all about pleasing Phil, I guess, eh? Uh, uh, Let's go move on to the news. Uh, The first one is that Canada is leaving Mali, but not as fast as we expected. Uh, This is something that I've been talking about, that I've been very frustrated by, that Canada went to all this effort to go to Mali and then was upsetting the Allies because it was going to stick to a strict schedule of leaving within a year, on, on exactly a year of its ending. We saw General Vance send out an email and then post that email on Twitter that said that they were going to do a phased withdrawal as opposed to an immediate withdrawal because we don't want to leave a gap there since the Romanians are taking longer to show up. Yeah, and you say ally here, which is accurate in this case because it's the Romanians and they are Canada's NATO ally. But otherwise, it's a UN mission. And I think that even though the contribution was quite modest in terms of scope, the worry seemed to be that domestically these assets, the helicopters, wouldn't be available in the case of an increased uptick in natural disasters in Canada, right? Well, that's what they're saying. I'm still thinking it was an excuse. I think that I saw the Murray Brewster report, and I, he didn't really question that uh, claim. I think they just wanted to stick to a year because they didn't want to be seen as, as not keeping the promise of it only being a year. But it seemed to me that whatever political capital we were trying to earn with the United Nations, again, we're still getting fuzzy messaging about this, but it does seem to suggest we're going to stick around a while longer. Yeah, and Canada is also going to provide a C-17 to help the Romanians get into Mali faster, right? Yes, and that's that's a really unique capability. Very few of the, our allies have the ability to move large large amounts of equipment easily. Uh, the C-17s are, are not unique within the alliance, but really only the United States, Canada, British, and maybe the French and a couple other countries have this capability. So by using this unique capability, we can show that we're we're still punching above our weight, as everybody likes to claim. Bit of a the middle ground, so it's not as quick. Canada would have liked. It's not July, but it's not October either. And then Canada's offering up some capabilities to make that transition a bit more smooth. 
which goes along with what I think is Canada's slogan in the world, doing the most we can do and doing the least we can do, which is pretty much the same thing. Mm. The other piece of news was Canada getting its first ever ambassador for women, peace and security. Jacqueline O'Neill was appointed to this position. This is really intended to have someone that will be the point person for implementing Canada's feminist foreign policy and engaging more broadly with partners and stakeholders outside of government, uh, which is really key for the Women, Peace and Security National Action Plan. Engaging with civil society is a big part of that. So it's interesting to see that Canada is going in that direction. There aren't a lot of ambassadors for women women, peace and security out there. I mean, we're following again in the footsteps of Sweden, who has someone with a similar role. But there is a lot going on uh, in terms of global politics when it comes to platforms uh, that the ambassador will be able to engage in. So I'm just thinking here, NATO has a special representative to the Secretary General on Women, Peace and Security. And NATO organizes a slew of conferences and, and events. This is a platform where the Canadian ambassador for women, peace and security could engage. The United Nations is also very active on this and the EU increasingly so. Uh, so the ambassador will, I'm sure, uh, be representing Canada at these international platforms and uh, domestically will be engaging with perhaps academia, civil society actors, and a host of government clients, we'll call that other departmental agencies and, and ministries, uh, so that Canada can be in a better position to implement the very ambitious plan it has laid out for itself in its renewed national action plan on women, peace, and security. Uh, have you met Jacqueline O'Neill? I've met her a couple of times at events organized by Global Affairs Canada, and I think I met her in D.C. once. Uh, she used to be the director of Inclusive Security. This was a D.C.-based institute uh, meant to enhance conversations on gender in the foreign and defense policy realm. Uh, I know she's had a lot of experience with the UN with the NATO, and NATO in terms of informing their policies and their practices when it comes to women, peace and security. And here, I think uh, a word or two uh, might be warranted about what that means. So it, it really means two things. It means those organizations' efforts to increase the participation of women, both internally, meaning are you hiring women within your organization, uh, but also externally in terms of women's groups that are being engaged abroad, either where these, either where the UN and NATO have uh, missions on the go, or um, more broadly speaking, to inform um, policy development within those organizations. It also means gender mainstreaming, which is an F, uh, a term that has popped up to describe whether or not policies and programs are assessed with everyone in mind. So when the UN, uh, or let's use the Canadian example, if, if Canada is, is deploying its foreign policy abroad, are the various programs under that banner affecting women, men, boys and girls in distinct ways? And so a gender mainstreaming approach urges you to think about the consequences of any planned action on different segments of society so that no one is particularly disadvantaged or advantaged in the process, but you're really accounting for everyone's needs. So for Canada, there's also a broader reading on identity. So it's not just 
uh, gender as men, women, boys, and girls. But even if you look at the gender-based analysis plus tool, there is an effort to consider a broader range of indicators. And so we would also focus on the LGBTQ2S, also visible minorities, indigenous communities, Whereas on the international stage, let's say NATO, there's a more narrow focus on gender as women, men, boys, and girls. Well, that's really very helpful because I had some ideas about this and I keep on seeing women, peace, and security as a particular phrase. So if people want to find out more about it, they could just Google women, peace, and security and they'll get the various international organizations because it's that phrase over and over again. My name is James Anderson. I'm currently an Air Force Intelligence Officer. Uh, for, for the last year, I've done a visiting Fulbright Fellowship uh, here at the Center for International Defense Policy at Queen's University. James, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how your experience has been with Center Canada? Okay, uh, so just to start off, I, uh, I'm an Air Force Intelligence Officer. Uh, I've been in the Air Force for about 10 years now. Uh, I was uh, I applied for a Fulbright scholarship to Canada because I was always curious about how the U.S. works with our allies versus talking about the, the you know the usual suspects like North Korea and Iran and all, all the usual folks China. Uh, I, I said, hey, let's let's talk about Canada because we never we never really do that. And so uh, I got the scholarship. Been here for a year. Um, I decided to do a master's degree in addition to. Uh, work at uh, CIDP, which was, was fortunate enough with, with your guidance and, and uh, Kim Nelson as well to, to you know fit me in nicely there. Uh, so yeah, it's been it's been great. Canada has has been uh, you know full of opportunities. You know things like middle power or something. You know concepts that are foreign to me, uh, and and you know there there are different conversations that are had. We talk about feminist foreign policy, things that that just don't come natural to people who study American foreign policy. And that's something that I had um, done in my master's degree in undergrad as well. So this is something, it's a, it's a new uh, new conversation and something that I'm getting adjusted to and I've, I've learned so much. Wonderful. And since you mentioned the word conversation, <laughs> I know you published a piece in The Conversation recently. Can you tell us about that piece? Uh, I think the title implies that President Trump should visit Kingston. That's it. That's it. It's, uh, I, I wanted to, I got a lot of flack for this. <laughs> <laughs> the Canadian public did not like what I had to say, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out uh, how Trump could get a win and see Canada as an opportunity to win, right? And, you know, President Trump's all about, you know, getting a win and doesn't care who loses. You know, it's, it's, it's that very, you know, means in sort of approach. Um, and so I present uh, sort of the carrot as President Trump could actually have a legacy in North America. And that North America sort of security agenda can start with a visit to Kingston, much like FDR did in 1938 when he said for the first time, Canada. Have your back, Mackenzie King in Woodbridge, Ontario, then said, "U.S., you know, I have your back." Uh, right before uh, Mackenzie King entered uh, Canada into World War II, and so my belief is that if uh, if you know, to to before in 1938 it was called the dispensation, Kingston dispensation. Now I'm saying that there needs to be a reaffirmation of Canada-U.S. relations, 
uh, and it could start with Kingston. It doesn't have to start with a traditional visit, state visit to Ottawa, which I believe, you know, Trump wouldn't even uh, see that as a win. I mean, it sort of, you know, has, has, has given sort of the, the Canada policy to, to Vice President Pence. So I said, no, Trump, it's actually in your best interest to, you know, to uh, readdress Chinese uh, ambitions in the Arctic or talk about and highlight, you know, the benefits of USMCA, right, um, to, to sort of get passed in Congress as well as uh, in, in Canada and the House of Commons as well. So uh, I think that it's very, I'm trying to really highlight wins other than saying, yeah, Canada should just, you know, stand by while, while, while Trump's here and then when Trump's leave, Trump leaves and potentially work with the next president. I'm um, saying no, they're, they're potential options. Mm. So. Hashtag winning in Kingston. Winning in Kingston. That's <laughs> it. Actually, I should have put that at the end. That's excellent. And you are also writing a thesis, as you mentioned earlier, which I understand is related, but probably a bit more in-depth. And you mentioned earlier that uh, the concept of the middle power was foreign to you, but now it probably no longer is. And uh, is that a central component of the thesis? You're addressing how Canada should react to China's rise and other changes in the international system? Yes. Uh, what I, so I'm looking at a, uh, I'm more so looking at power transition, right? And, and how when, when one power sort of declines compared to what they used to be, like America, you know, many people have talked about is uh, potentially in decline. Uh, and then a rising power like China. And I'm saying, you know, how does Canada view itself uh, as it's, you know, does it does it release sort of its alignment with the U.S. and, and pivot more towards China? I hate the word pivot. I'm trying to find a word for that. <laughs> but, um, but we've seen that. So I started this about September time frame. And then the Huawei stuff happened in December. And initially my hunch was that, you know, we, you know, you know, Trudeau was speaking very highly of you know the options when when it uh, came to East Asia specifically in China, uh, and and then the Huawei thing happened and then mm. that sort of upset a lot of. Uh, I saw one interview that said you know Trudeau finally turned into a realist right because uh, things started happening and so I'm saying that maybe to manage or to look at how uh, Canada can reposition itself during China's rise, we need to actually look at the very first power transition uh, when it was from Pax Britannica, uh, the sort of British Empire is doing, doing its thing, and the transition happened to, to the U.S. Uh, over the course of a three-decade period, essentially, uh, the turn of the 20th century all the way to about 1930. So I'm, I'm looking at specific events from those that time period, Alaska boundary dispute, smooth poly tariff, and the Anglo-Japanese sort of alliance where Canada said, you know, the British should actually get out of that, that, that alliance and it will bring us into war. Uh, and I'm saying these were all periods where Canada, the U.S., and Great, and Great Britain at the time all were in sort of a dispute period, right? Canada was either opposing the U.S., or Canada was opposing Britain, and so it was, Canada was always stuck in the middle of these things. And I'm saying that it's it's sort of what we see now, where Canada is stuck in the middle, uh, you know, in in Huawei, for example. Mm -hmm. So 
looking at that, trying to pull out historical clues, the one big finding that I, that I have that, uh, that I'm developing, which is similar to what most people think, which is there's a very big cultural element that's going to prevent Canada from actually realigning and geostrategically reorienting to, from the U.S. to China. Uh, and so certainly the cultural element, human rights, these things have, uh, are, are, are big no-nos uh, when it comes to Canadian foreign policymakers uh, rethinking themselves during China's rise. So a clash of political cultures. Yes, yes. And you're not quite done with the thesis. Uh, you're spending the summer finishing that up. And what's next for you after Queens, after Kingston? You're going back to the United States. I will. So my, uh, I it took me a long time, uh, uh, maybe four months, to convince DoD, you know, the seven hundred and sixteen billion dollar uh, bureaucracy that the Pentagon is, to let them to let me go on the Fulbright. Uh, and then finally, my uh, my career team said that well, we want to make sure that your next job is much more strategic in nature so that I'm not going back to a tactical job mm. as an intelligence officer. So my next job will be um, Air Force Central. So Central SETCOM, then you have the Air Force component. I'll be working in the A2, so the Intel as a staff officer, which is very rare because I, will only, I won't even be a captain yet. It's not even a job for uh, my rank as a first lieutenant. Um, but but it's, it's gonna be something that's gonna be very busy, but uh, Definitely operating at the strategic approach, uh, mostly looking at the Middle East. That's very exciting, and I understand it's close to home too. It is. It's thirty minutes down the road from where I grew up. Where can you get that? And where I went to uh, undergrad as well at the University of South Carolina. Uh, so it's going to be amazing to get back and uh, take what I've learned uh, in Canada. And, and really apply it potentially even if I could do an exchange officer job in the future. Uh, you know, I've, I've learned so much, so many key takeaways. There, there are nuances that, that uh, you know, I think we sort of overlook and we say, Canada and the U.S., they look similar. Canadians are like, no, we're not similar. The U.S., we're like, yeah, we're pretty much, I guess we're probably the same. Don't really know about Canada. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see some key differences all the way down to trying to swipe my Visa debit card and it running as credit, <laughs> and then you know they're, they're like really uh, interesting uh, things that, that I've learned since I've been there. Well, it was a pleasure to have you, James, not only on Battle Rhythm but also at Queens for the year. And I hope to uh, cross paths with you again in Canada or in the United States. Thank you. Thank, thank you for your time and, and thank you for everything you've done for me and and also thank you for having me on the show. Congrats on the new job. <laughs> Can't wait. Welcome to episode two of Steve's Peeves. This time I'm focusing on those damn millennials. Well, actually, I'm focusing on those who criticize the damn millennials. How many times do we have to hear folks blame the millennials for the economy, for the political system, for whatever's going on? One more time is too damn many. Why is that? Well, first, some basics. Millennials aren't the ones with political power, so the outcomes we face today aren't their fault. Second, millennials aren't even millennials anymore. That is, we keep on talking about the Utes, the young folks, uh, but that's referring to both the millennials, the folks born after Generation X, and the folks born after them. Whatever the boomers will call them, they'll certainly blame them for whatever our ills are today. 
And the thing is that millennials themselves are probably not more, and probably even perhaps less coherent as a generation, with this common set of preferences and experiences and outlooks as previous generations. Uh, this is the thing, when we talk about generations, what is it that binds them together? What unifies them? For American boomers, it was really growing up in the baby boom and Vietnam and things like that. For Generation X, it's hard to really say. For the millennials, maybe growing up with computers and with, with cell phones and all the rest, it's hard to say what really binds people together. They have to have a common experience. The other thing that I want to say about this is that if you want to take seriously the problems of millennials, the, the question that is being raised today is simply this. The dream has always been that one's parents will leave their kids better off than they were. But this whole idea that the kids will be better off may be on hold, maybe even going backwards, given uh, what's going on with the environment. Okay, so let's focus on uh, the basic enduring dynamic that I can generalize about. Blaming the next generation. When I was in the Soviet Union in Moscow in 1987, when it was still the Soviet Union, I was really struck by how I was having a conversation with one Russian and he was saying, well, these kids today. And it struck me that everybody blames the kids today, that everybody thinks that the next generation is softer, they've had it easier, that they complain more and all the rest. And that's really the common dynamic. The boomers blame Generation X, and then they blame the millennials. And, you know, the next damn kids will be Generation Z or whatever they're called. So let's talk about today's political realities. The millennials didn't vote for Brexit, and they didn't vote for Trump. In general, when we see their surveys, they're more progressive than the previous generation. Indeed, every generation is more progressive than the previous generation. Surveys show Generation X is less racist, less homophobic, less xenophobic than the boomers that came before them, that the millennials are less racist and less homophobic and less xenophobic and less this than that than Generation X, and the folks that have followed on with the millennials are the same. Uh, and the funny thing is, this has become quite a challenge for organized religions, especially those that demonize LGBTQ because the kids today have gay and lesbian and trans friends and don't get why they should hate, fear, or exclude them. Uh, this is a real challenge being that, that the Republicans in the United States have are facing is that they're simply less appealing because a lot of their stances are becoming increasingly obsolete. Now, the key way to blame the young folks is to say they don't vote. Well, it's always been the case that younger folks folks vote at a lesser frequency than older folks. Uh, they, they haven't bought into the system yet, they, they don't have as much annoying stakes, they're busy, they're transient, older folks have more time, they have more connections, they have more stakes. But the good news is that gap is shrinking, at least lately, that the younger folks turned out in the 2018 midterm elections in the states. That if they have a new referendum in Britain over Brexit, it may go the other way, since Brexit supporters are dying. Again, they're old and they're leaving the scene. And more Brexit opponents are either reaching voting age or they're reaching ages where they're more likely to turn out in greater numbers. Now, some might suggest this is going too far, that the kids today are too left-wing, while that they're too likely to support the Green parties. That We're starting to see that in Europe to a certain degree, that the Greens have outperformed other parties in Germany. That they're choosing left extremism rather than right extremism. There may be something to that, but given that they're the ones who are likely to not only likely, they're going to have to live with the consequences of climate change, who can blame them for wanting more radical efforts to, to deal with the, the, the environment? 
there's a lot more I could say about this, but the point of this is that blaming millennials for much of our stuff today is misguided at best, deceptive at worst, and always distracting. Let's blame those who have power for how they use it and for those who let it happen. Finally, the irony is that as a political scientist, I want to generalize about behavior. I got into this stuff because I liked the idea of understanding the general dynamics of why wars occur. That my first uh, work was on why do countries take sides in other people's ethnic conflicts. My current work is on why the dynamics of civil-military relations apply beyond this place at this moment. I guess I just think that generalizing about generations is a pretty crappy way to generalize, and that is my generalization about generational generalizing. Thank you. Today we have Dan Dresner, a professor at Tufts University, who is one of the original generation of bloggers who now writes a daily column for the Washington Post. He's an expert on sanctions. He's authored several books, including The System Worked, to explain the response to the global financial crisis of 2008, and the widely used and much amusing textbook, Theory of International Politics and Zombies. Dan and I go way back as he provided some tips to me when I was preparing for my own interview for a fellowship that took me to the Pentagon, something that I mentioned earlier in this episode. I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. I'm also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and I write spoiler alerts for the Washington Post. Dan Dresner, welcome to Battle Rhythm, the podcast of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. And Dan is trying not to laugh, and you can laugh, we do have humor, <laughs> about the name of the podcast. We had many... Uh, uh, we had long discussions, and this is the thing that took us the most stress, to try to figure out a good name. So, and you came up with Battle Rhythm. We came up with Battle Rhythm. Okay. So welcome to our, our podcast. So today, what did you talk about? Uh, I talked about the frayed state of the liberal international order and who was responsible for it. So the liberal international order, which we think of as the sort of global rules of the game, uh, generally promoting the idea of an open global economy, uh, relatively uh, multilateral uh, sets of rules, promotion of open policies as well, certainly is under threat. There's no denying that. The question is, what is the source of the threat? Um, a lot of people assume that it must be revisionism from without, the rise of authoritarian capitalist states like Russia and China, China in particular. Um, and what I suggested is that, in fact, what you need to be concerned about is not revisionism from without, but rather revisionism from within. That, in fact, uh, using sort of Susan Strange's metrics of how you think about power, sort of structural pillars of power, security, production, uh, finance, and ideas and information, what is striking is not U.S. weakness, but rather U.S. strength. Um, that the U.S. is still the overwhelming hegemon when it comes to areas of security and finance. Uh, it still actually is pretty hegemonic in terms of production as well, um, and somewhat less so in terms of ideas and information. And I suggested that if China was trying to pursue a sort of rational revisionist course of action, they're doing it in a really bad way. And so while there's no denying that China has certain you know, limited uh, revisionist aims, particularly in the security sphere, by focusing on security, they're actually almost guaranteeing that it will be impossible for them to revise other aspects of the order. Um, and that might be because there are other aspects of the order they don't necessarily want to revise. They're seen as much more responsible stakeholders in, in certain areas. Um, such as peacekeeping and what have you, and even in the economic realm where they've created their own institutions, 
a lot of those institutions are fully consistent with the norms of the liberal international order. And so, um, as I think Sarah Mahler said uh, uh, today, you know, in some ways there's changes within the system. There's not a change of system. And that has implications, but it's not that as big of a deal. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if you look at what the Trump administration has done, uh, they've been extremely rationally revisionist. Um, they've attacked uh, the foundations of the ideas and information order through the promulgation of concepts like fake news or the idea of the mainstream media as being the enemy of the, uh, the people. Uh, they've taken significant attacks on the production order as well, trying to reroute supply chains so that uh, they're much more America first rather than globalized. And uh, But on security and finance, they've, they've sort of held their fire with the idea that those might be the things they can disrupt further down the road. Um, the question is why, and uh, I pointed out that the administration, by being genuinely populist nationalist, uh, generally abhors the liberal international order. The liberal international order for them is a real problem because it's cosmopolitan, it relies on experts, um, it's pluralist, uh, it imposes constraints on states, and these are all things that populists don't like. Um, so it's not surprising that they push back on it. Uh, the problem is, is that um, whether or not the U.S. will stop doing this after Trump, I am somewhat skeptical about because this ties into a deeper problem in terms of U.S. grand strategy, which is essentially you've seen a uh, erosion of trust in authority and expertise in the United States, you've seen the rise of political polarization in the United States, and you've seen the slower decline or ebbing of congressional and judicial checks on presidential power. All of these combined essentially have wound up causing the president to have almost the monopoly on foreign policy authority. And if you combine a very strong president with a very polarized set of parties, you wind up with a nightmare scenario where essentially each president will articulate a grand strategy. They can't get congressional buy-in for it. They will do everything via executive action, and then four years later their successor will completely revoke everything that their predecessor did and try to tack in a completely different direction. So the result is, uh, is that it's going to be potentially impossible for the United States to do grand strategy because to do grand strategy, you have to be able to credibly commit. And the ability of the US to credibly commit going forward is under serious threat. What's striking about the last part of your discussion is that it kind of reminds me of the discussions we had in graduate school where people used to compare the British to the United States, where the British had swings from labor to conservatism back and forth. and very few checks in the system, whereas the United States was much more credible because everybody who made decisions was sort of bound by uh, the institutions. That there was too many veto points, right. so that way people couldn't change things too quickly. And so I guess the question I'd have then is, the British used to be able to manage this kind of thing. Was it just that the left and the right, long before Brexit, were the differences were not so polarized so that they could both support the imperial order in particular ways and had differences, but they weren't really big ideological shifts? Right. I mean, I would say that that was the, the primary difference. And also, you can argue that, that interests were sufficiently common so that even if, you know, liberal or, or Tory had different policy, you know, different ideologies, on foreign policy, there was sufficient commonality in terms of sort of advancing the British interest, as it were, that you wouldn't think about they're necessarily needing to be a, a partisan edge on that. And by the way, this is also true of the United States. You know, if you talk about what Republicans and Democrats thought in terms of foreign policy, you know, as recently as I think even 10 years ago, there wasn't necessarily that much of a bifurcation. Um, but it's become much more extreme. It's also the case, I think, now 
that U.S. foreign policy is increasingly seen as a plaything of domestic politics in a way that it wasn't for a long time. The sort of increasing political polarization in the United States is not a new phenomenon. This has been going on for 50 years. But for the longest time, you can argue foreign policy had been sort of the exception. It had been somewhat preserved as, as distinct. And that has really fallen by the wayside, uh, particularly since Trump got elected. And we saw a little that bit of this even before Trump was elected, where you had either Cruz or Rubio, I forget which, sort of trying to send direct messages to Iran about... Tom Cotton. Uh, it was Tom, Tom Cotton. Cotton who sent the letter, yeah. Yeah, well, you mentioned Tom Cotton as a potential president. Uh, the groan you heard in the audience today was from me. Uh, I, that, that's sort of a real nightmare scenario. I mean, we, we've already been sort of scared of him becoming Secretary of Defense or was it Attorney General? I forget what the other, other position, or National Security Advisor. And all these are really, really horrifying choices. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have anything to add to that. Um, you know, uh, douchebag's going to douchebag. Uh, I guess one of the things I wanted to push back at, or, or just ask you a little bit further, is go back to the, the Russia and China thing, which is, um, yes, they're not threats necessarily to the entire order, except what Russia has been doing the past few years, where you have great power just going hammer to, hammering at the domestic politics uh, without any restraint, it seems like, killing uh, people in the middle of Britain with, with chemical, biological weapons, mm -hmm. um, being very blunt about trying to take down the American political system during 2016, trying again 2018, they'll certainly going to try in 2020. Uh, they've paid some costs for it, but not as much as they, they should have. So the question then is, is, is this really anything different? Or is, you know, Russia's certainly revisionist, but, and its military threat is not very significant, but its political threat is. I mean, Brexit was a nail-biter, essentially, and they probably tipped the balance on that and see how destructive that's been to the British. Well, all right, so a few things. First of all, I, I want to be very wary of claiming, there's no denying that Russia interfered in both Brexit and in a variety of European elections and in the 2016 election. It's when you start getting talking about the effects that I, mm -hmm. I get very wary of saying, uh, of trying to be able to measure what they did. Um, I, I think there, there are two things that are worth pointing out here. And, and by the way, I think, I, among other things, Mike Pompeo would agree with me on this, which is first, Russia trying to interfere in, in Western elections is hardly a new phenomenon. They've been mm -hmm. doing this for decades now, mm -hmm. uh, back when it was the Soviet Union and, and you know, uh, during the post-Cold War period to, uh, as well. The difference is that this time it seemed like they were pushing on an open door, mm -hmm. um, which means that the problem has less to do with Russia and more to do with the sort of domestic polarization within the mm -hmm. United States and within, you know, uh, Western Europe, which is... You know, the degree to which you can argue stagnation after 2008 or the, the flattening out of, of middle class wages and or rising amounts of, of, um, uh, of immigration and questions of sort of national identity created fissures that I don't think, you know, uh, liberal internationalists necessarily realized could possibly be exploited. And so, you know, in the end, there is no denying that, that Russia took these actions. I have simply have no idea whether they had any effect. But more importantly, if they didn't do it, it wouldn't have surprised me if someone else would have. Um, again, because the country was so polarized, it, it's become increasingly easy for outside actors to do so. Indeed, I think one of the things I'm legitimately concerned about is not just a country like Russia sort of uh, negatively taking advantage of polarization, but rather you're seeing increasingly the polarization of U.S. alliances, where certain allies are definitely going to want a Republican in power. If you're in Saudi Arabia or in Abu Dhabi or in Israel, 
you want a Republican to be in the White House because if a Democrat is in the White House, suddenly your life is about to get a lot more uncomfortable. On the other hand, if you're located in Europe or probably Canada, uh, you might very well want a Democrat to be in power because life is going to be much easier dealing with a Democrat than a Republican. Um, and that's also unprecedented, and I'm not terribly keen on that either. Well, those are really interesting dynamics. Um, I guess one thing I want to ask you next is your talk today talked about how the structures haven't really changed that much, and you cited your previous book called uh, The System Worked. Yes. And so in your discussion about the dynamics of the past several years, you really talked about Russia and China and the United States. And I'm sort of curious as to whether, given the pressures that Trump has placed on the, on the system, whether the system is still working and muting Trump's effects. So are the various institutions, are the Germans, are, is the EU, uh, is Canada, uh, are there other folks out there that are are holding the line and, make, and the system is still chunking along? Because we haven't had a, a big financial crisis despite the fact that I remember from my undergraduate days that uncertainty is really bad for the economy and I've taken a call on Trump and uncertainty engine. Um, so I guess to me uh, the question is do you feel, still think the system itself is working, the, the structures of, of, of the international economy, of the international political system, despite having pressure from an unexpected direction? Um, uh, the answer here is I'm a little bit skeptical of them still working. Um, if you look at global capital markets, you can argue the system hasn't changed all that much. Although you're, you're seeing the Trump administration really begin to erode some of the, the measures that were taken post-2008 to try to make sure that systemically, globally systemically important financial institutions uh, couldn't necessarily take down the system again. So those you know, sort of new rules that were set up uh, are potentially under threat. The more disconcerting aspect of this is the world trading system where, yeah, the system is under serious strain. Uh, the Trump administration, by essentially vetoing the appointment of any new appellate court, uh, uh, new appellate judges for the WTO uh, appellate body, is almost guaranteeing that that appellate body will cease to function by mm -hmm. the end of this year. Um, the invocation of national security tariffs uh, and uh, sanctions across a wide swath swath of the uh, of America's trading states mean that you know you're seeing the U.S. now operating at tariff levels that are unprecedented in the last 25 years. Um, so you know the system is under serious strain. Um, the good news on that front is that almost all of this is reversible still. Uh, if a Democrat replaces Trump in 2020, uh, they will be able by fiat to essentially remove a lot of the tariffs that were put in place by Trump. Um, so this might be, this is, we're still in the blip, maybe not a trend uh, territory. But the problem is, is A, there's at least a 50-50 chance Trump will be reelected, uh, and B, whether this episode is going to cause U.S. allies and U.S. trading partners to think that this is not uh, an exception, this is the beginning of something more serious. Mm. Um, and it is going to be extremely hard for the next president to be able to say, look, that was just some temporary insanity the American people suffered. This is, we're never going to go there again. You're going to have to actually engage in far more um, significant uh, steps to, to ensure that the U.S. ability to credibly commit actually is sustainable. Are there any canaries in the coal mine that we should be watching so that way we know when to sell, sell our stocks and buy gold or whatever Sean Hannity or whoever is selling on TV? Um, the canaries are kind of starting to squeak already. I mean, you know, the, the, the very fact that the U.S. seems entirely comfortable with 
viewing its relationship with China now as one of almost economic warfare as opposed to one of economic containment or uh, you know, economic statecraft is, is disturbing, um, to say the least. And the, the question becomes whether or not you start seeing either China or the United States trying to tell third parties, look, it's them or us. Now, I don't think that's really going to work anyway, um, but, you know, the, the, nonetheless, the fact that it's been articulated is something of a concern. And I wrote a piece, a uh, cover story in Reason a couple of months ago, basically arguing that there's an awful lot of ways in which the current global political economy represents, you know, resembles the global political economy of 1910. Um, yeah, exactly. So, no, this is, I, I've, been, uh, I've been in the middle of what I call my Season of Doom series of essays. Uh, and yeah, that, that was one of the, the highlights of them. Well, shifting gears a little bit, uh, one of your recent books was called The Ideas Industry. Mm -hmm. And it was a study of sort of where do ideas come from. And one of the interesting contrasts between Canada and the United States is that you go to Washington, there's a boodle of think tanks. Each think tank has 20 to 100 people. The buildings are amazing. They're incredibly well staffed. And they crank out all kinds of stuff. In Canada, we don't have think tanks. We have thinkers in buildings because the associations that we call think tanks usually have one researcher, some staff, and that's it. And so there's a real gap. Wait, are you saying if I moved to Canada, I could be my own think tank? Well, here's a trick. Okay. How do you fund yourself? Because well, I only have to fund me. I mean, you know, surely... Rogers seems to have a lot of money. Could I get a Rogers think tank? That, 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 I really like that idea. One of the strange things about Canada is it's secretly regressive. There's oh. no inheritance tax. And when you do your taxes and you do your little thing for charity, at the very end you multiply everything by 0.2 so all the benefits sort of disappear. Huh. So there's not a whole lot of incentives to give to Dan and Dan's House of Ideas. House of Dresner? That was, I was so close to getting that think tank. That's frustrating. <laughs> well, you still can. You just have to pay. You find some other way to make the, the, the pay work. Mm -hmm. But um, what the question to you is, is if we have this gap, do you think that this is something that academics can do to sort of fill that gap? Um, do you have any suggestions for uh, how to um, create institutes without money? Because right now, there is an academic who has lots of followers in Canada. Mm -hmm. And he's making a lot of money off of it. Oh, right, that one. Yes, yes. Jordan yes, Peterson. Yes. yes okay. So he's really not a model that most of us want to emulate. <laughs> so do you have any suggestions given you know, what you've learned about um, influencers? And all the rest? Yeah, so, you know, the ideas industry, uh, so I guess the answer I would offer is that, you know, the ideas industry warns that there are two kinds of thinkers out there, right? There's, there's public intellectuals and there's thought leaders. Public intellectuals are Isaiah Berlin's equivalent of a fox. They know a little bit about uh, many things. The hedgehog is the, per the thing, person who knows one big thing. And that essentially... There's been sort of structural changes in the way we operate that have advantaged thought leaders at the expense of public intellectuals. And some of these things I've mentioned before, the erosion of trust and authority and expertise, the rise of political polarization, and also the rise of plutocrats that are uh, you know, willing to fund particular thinkers. Uh, the thing I would warn you is that this will, in can you know, it sounds like will create a recipe for thought leaders uh, to thrive, uh, whereas for public intellectuals just to survive. Now, that said, in Canada, the difference is, is that, as you say, if the think tank community is extremely thin, um, and if plutocrats are not terribly powerful, uh, congratulations, it means academics are actually for once in the driver's seat. 
because if academics actually have you know significant federal funding, and I know that most Canadian higher education institutions are state funded, um, this means you actually have the institutional infrastructure and advantage in a way that uh, you know a small think tank or the occasional plutocratically funded person would not. The day, you know the, the thing you're facing is are the Jordan Petersons of the world, the people who you know can function as sort of individual autonomous thought leaders and somehow monetize uh, uh, their musings. I would say that, that in this kind of world, the academy can do two things to maintain its relevance. The first is you need to peer review the hell out of the few thought leaders you have. So, you know, really have some fun going after Jordan Peterson. I think that, you know, if, if Jordan Peterson really wants to self-style himself as, as, you know, an intellectual, I think it's entirely worth challenging that notion, finding out exactly, you know, where his ideas uh, hold up and, and where is he sounding like absolute crap. Um, and that would be worth doing. The second thing is, is that the one way in which you can make the state pay attention, and there's been some really interesting work done on this by Judith Kelly and, and Beth Simmons, is, you know, start on the issues you care about, start developing indices and metrics and rankings. Um, of how Canada does in the world. Um, because if there is anything it turns out that countries care about, it's how they do relative to other countries. We're like high school that way. Canada's very much that. Exactly. And Canada, I think, is uniquely sensitive to that, uh, given it, its particular uh, areas. So, yeah, if I was you know, telling you what to do, rank how well Canada does in terms of R2P. Rank how well Canada does in terms of providing global public goods relative to other countries. Um, you know, governments are, are going to pay attention to that stuff. Fantastic. In terms of your future work, I know of at least one project uh, that you're working on, which is you have been making quite an effort, uh, quite a sustained effort, a Dan Dale kind, uh, kind of effort to document Donald Trump's I'm honored you would put me in the same sentence as Daniel Dale. Well, the challenge is that he lies and he acts like a toddler every single day, so it creates work yeah, for both of you. To be clear, you're talking about Trump and not Daniel Dale there. That's right. Yes, Daniel Dale has been working for the Toronto Star, but has now moved to CNN, and right. he has documented all the lies Trump tells, and he's very willing to call him out on the lies. Mm -hmm. What you've been doing on Twitter has been every time somebody sympathetic to Trump refers to him in some sort of behavior as being immature, uh, you you've have this ongoing thread of up to, what, 770 or so? 777. 777. Uh, different tweets that have different instances of somebody actually who's a supporter of Trump referring to him as being a toddler in some way. I have more than that. I have a book manuscript. I understand that. My yes. question about the book manuscript is it... What is it besides a list of 777 tweets? It's a fair point. Um, actually, the, there's now we're close to 777 uh, examples in the book. Um, the book is a uh, is w w makes two arguments. The first is, yeah, I'm saying Trump acts like a toddler, um, and to demonstrate that, uh, I have it broken down into a series of toddler traits: mm. uh, temper tantrums, oppositional behavior. Um, impulse control, short attention span, uh, knowledge deficits, um, you know, you name it. Uh, you know, each of these chapters opens with a quote from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, <laughs> That's a great move. Des describing the, uh, the, the toddler behavior. Um, and then sort of explaining, yeah, I'm pretty sure Trump is, is guilty of this. The second point I'm trying to make in the, in the book is that this is actually more of a problem now than it would have been 50 years ago. 
during the Cold War because as scary as it is that, that Trump seems to have all of the developmental uh, defects that a, a toddler does, what is more disconcerting, and again, this ties into what I was saying before, is that the president is far more unconstrained in terms of what uh, he or she can do than in the past. So essentially, you know, on a wide array of issues, Congress and the judiciary wound up investing the presidency with ever more, ever greater powers mm -hmm. because the president was seen as the last adult in the room at the exact moment that we elected a toddler to be president. So the title is Toddler in Chief? Uh, that is the title. The title is Toddler in Chief, what Donald Trump can teach us about the modern presidency. This is uh, going to sell like hotcakes, uh, I'm sure. It, well, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, there's an audience for it. The, the nice thing about Trump is that there's a large audience who hates him, and they'll eat this up. Uh, it's part of the problem with our polarization, but that you can take advantage of polarization by selling to at least half of America, if not to the other half. And your publisher could not sell it to in Lubbock, Texas, for instance, because that's where I used to live. And I know there won't be any consumers there, but they could certainly sell it in uh, cosmopolitan America. Well, furthermore, the great thing about Amazon is that, you know, before ordering books online, is that even the people in Lubbock that might not like the president can order it that way and, you know, read it. In a plain brown package, exactly. I'm sure that would be very good. So what is what else are you working on these days? Uh, the other thing I'm working on is a, uh, a sort of deep IR, deep dive into IR theory. Um, which well, is this because to compensate for the toddler in chief, you have to then do something really scholastic? Actually, I do. I mean, in some ways, it was a reaction also to the ideas industry, which is I've been doing a lot of public intellectual stuff for a long period of time, and I now want to write something that only other IR scholars care about. Um, you know, it, it's it's almost like when you like I eat chocolate, I almost immediately after that have this impulse to drink orange juice or something. Or it's like the stars that do a, a prestige movie, but then do the action exactly. Movie. Yes, I'm doing. I got to do one for the you know one for the studio, and then I got to do one for me. Um, yeah. So this is a, a book about uh, basically the concept of power in international relations theory, and is sh that surely we can come up with a better way of thinking about it uh, than the extant literature has. So a little bit hubristic on my part. We haven't moved that much past David Baldwin of 1980s early. Right, and I'm suggesting that's a problem. I, th I think that would be a really interesting book because whether power has fundamentally changed or not, I think we need to think, rethink about it. I assume there'll be some network analysis in that, and that seems to be something that's flowing through your veins these days. Uh, a little bit. It, it's more that ne it's more what network analysis represents, which is I think the the, the thing I'm interested in is that. Um, Essentially, I'm going to argue that a lot of the reasons that different scholars have different conceptions about power in international relations theories is because they freight in all these hidden assumptions about time. Mm -hmm. um, and that one of the, the fascinating things about this is that we traditionally, you know, realism still is enough of a hold of our, our, the way we think about things that people assume that if actors amass or exercise power, it automatically triggers negative feedback effects. Mm -hmm. But it can also trigger positive feedback effects. Um, and that's in some ways the network thing that, mm -hmm. that you know if you think about uh, power as, as sort of networks there are ways in which networks create winner take all dynamics where if you accumulate enough you wind up creating an incentive for everyone to, to be involved Twitter no competitors right. Facebook no competitors things like that the dollar yeah exactly so essentially what I want to start working on is under what conditions does uh, does the exercise of power trigger negative feedbacks, but when does it not? When does the exercise of power trigger positive feedbacks? And so that's sort of the question I'm hoping to think about now seriously for the next couple of years. Well, that's a really interesting topic and really interesting book, um, and I'm looking forward to what you achieve with it. But of course, the real question that we all want to know is, 
will there be a third addition to theory of international <laughs> relations and zombies based on the Trump theory era? of international politics? Theory, and sorry, international politics and zombies. Uh, is is there going to be a third edition? Of, uh, you know, because zombie movies keep coming back, and so the yes. question is whether do you have anything else to say? I think that's the problem: is whether I have anything else to say. Um, I, you know, I so I wrote the first edition in 2011, and then I wrote the revived edition in 2014. Uh, I wrote the, the that edition because the press came back to me and said, "Do you have more to say?" Uh, you know, what I'm not sure about is whether I would have more to say this mm -hmm. time. Um, certainly, Trump would make it easier to to do. Um, I think I would have to add some more theories, and I'd obviously have to update the zombie mm -hmm. literature. I mean, a lot's happened since then. I mean, we reanimated zombie brain, you know, pig brains, for example. That, I don't know if you know about that. I wasn't sure about that, but I do know on Netflix there's a whole lot more new zombie TV shows yes, and exactly. movies. Yeah, that's the thing. I feel like this way. I will say this: in 2011, when I wrote it, I felt like for a brief moment, I really did have a grasp of the entire canon. Um, I don't know if that's possible now. I really don't. Um, and so, in some ways, that's the, the thing I always worry about now. I, I know I, I, I literally created a monster when I wrote the, the zombie and IR book, because I know that, I mean, book publishers told me that, like, after that book came out, everyone kept coming to them. It's like, I want to do Game of Thrones in IR. I want to do Hunger Games in IR. I want to sure. do, you know, sci-fi concept in IR. The thing about the zombies, one of the reasons I liked the, them as a metaphor was everyone in, automatically knew what you were talking about. You know, your average eighteen-year-old might not know a lot about eight, uh, IR theory, but like they were all exposed to zombies at some point. You know, it's sort of a common cultural lodestar. And one of the things I do worry about is the sort of fragmentation of culture to the point where pop culture in in IR, which I've certainly done, um, becomes more and more difficult because you're relying on more and more niche forms of culture. You know, um, so. You know, there, there might be a Netflix show that is extremely popular with a very small slice of people, but it won't necessarily resonate beyond that to your, you know, to your average eighteen-year-old if they even watch this stuff. So it's it's going to be a challenge going forward. I haven't taught undergraduates in eight years or seven years. I'm teaching them for the first time in the fall, and I was cognizant throughout my career that my old references were dying off, mm -hmm. unlike zombies, and so I would have to then show the scene from Footloose for Chicken rather than actually just refer to it. Oh yeah, you absolutely have to do that, yeah. Uh, but I will say, they do. Footloose still endures, like they love they love that scene. Oh, it's a fantastic scene and it's yeah. great for illustrating all kinds of dynamics. Also, I mean, it's Bonnie Tyler holding out for a hero. I mean, that, you know, that, that, that does transcend generations. That and the fact that Sarah Jessica Parker is, is, is a small cameo in that is, is delightful as well. So I'm, I'm hoping that my Harry Potter references will still work, because that's something that might go across generations, right. but I do know that Game of Thrones is only to play to some, some folks. Mm -hmm. And we appreciate your time with Battle Rhythm, no matter how amusing you find the name. <laughs> uh, we found your presentation today amusing, despite the fact that you declared yourself to not talk about things you're not an expert on, but you made harsh judgments on social media about my suit. Uh, we had I'm glad you're over that. I am over it. No, it, it was amusing. Okay. The challenge with Twitter is that people don't know context. And so... I know you, I, I, I'm the person in the room that you do know, so there's only one person you really can you know, tease in the room. Yeah. So I was perfectly fine with it. I was just sort okay. of like, this is my new suit. <laughs> if you picked another suit, I would have been, eh, whatever. But, and so of course it led to a conversation with some other people about whether I have pleats or not. And I'm like, no, Aaron Simpson has convinced me that I should never wear pleats again. Yeah, Aaron is very militant on the pleat thing. She's very militant on many things. That's true. Well, thank you very much, Dan, and enjoy the rest of Kingston and the rest of the conference. Thanks, it was a pleasure to be here.
In future podcasts, we will close the podcast by answering questions people send us via Twitter or email. Our email address is cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. And our Twitter account is at cdsnrcds. You can find all of our activities, events, and more about the CDSN at cdsn-rcds.com. Mm-hmm.